0: For many warrior reenactors of the Seminole Wars, the smell of gunpowder from a mock battle is sweeter than the aroma of a roasting pig from campfire barbecues. Smoking gunpowder represents action and engagement. It represents an adrenaline rush from fighting for your side while hundreds of onlookers watch nearby. And it represents a means to show what is usually only described through the written word in a history book. This, they are saying, is how it really went down. That smoking gunpowder then is indeed sweeter for some, but not for Louis Bear's heart. A seminal living historian interpreter, he prefers the slow burn of smoking meats in a seminal hunting camp, where he can live in tune with the old ways of self-reliance far removed from the conveniences of modern American life, where he can trap and then carefully butcher a raccoon, sear it on a spit, and then provide it for his family's dinner plates. After all, you just can't find tender enough raccoon fillets at your local supermarket anymore these days. It is where he can quietly engage with the public about Seminole life, separate from battles that are recreated at Florida State Parks. And it is where he can personally demonstrate and educate, through his appearance, his words, and his activities, what the Seminole customs were that sustained a people often on the run throughout Florida in the early to mid-1800s. Louis Bear'sheart joins us to discuss all this. Why he believes authenticity is the key to all he does and represents, how he earned his noble Seminole name, and how his living history interpretation is a family affair. Louis Bear'sheart, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. It's good to be here. Looking forward to having a great conversation. I've met you at several reenactments. You consider yourself a living historian or a reenactor or something in between, or some hybrid. I see myself somewhere in
1: between. When you think a reenactor, Most people think a reenactor to be someone that studies a specific portion of history, sometimes even just a specific battle. Living history, to me, tells the whole story. From beginning to end, what caused the entire story to happen, and how that whole story goes about. I really do enjoy seeing the whole story, the whole picture, the big picture of everything that's going on
0: at an event. Without the whole story, you only have just a little snippet of the history other reenactors have told me something similar that when you see a battle interpretation it's only a snapshot and there's no interaction between those doing the interpretation and the general public. Whereas in contrast, as a living historian, you get a chance to interact. What kind of experience has this been for you? It's always positive. There are some hiccups with interpretation,
1: silly stories, or silly questions, or what might be considered a silly question by some, and others not so much. Are you really going to eat that? Or do you really sleep there? Questions such as that. And sometimes I think there's underlying questions that aren't being asked. Well, how do you sleep there in that tent with no doors and no floors? Most people, when they think of a tent, they think of mosquito netting, they think of being able to close yourself in for additional security from animals, reptiles, bugs, things of that nature. You know, There's precautions and things that you do to, to lessen that exposure. The question of, are you really going to eat that? As an example, I sometimes have wild animals hanging over my fire for food showing that in the 1830s we didn't always have hamburger available to us as an example once in a while I'll hang a raccoon over the fire and I actually do enjoy eating raccoon you hang it over the fire and let it sit in the smoke for about five or six hours and it tastes like Sonny's barbecue it's different than what people realize it kind of brings to mind a, a thought that my mother had posed to me one time When discussing this very topic, she said, well, we don't have the small town butcher shops anymore with the whole animal hanging there above the counter or behind the counter. We have a disconnect from the animal to food nowadays. I've had a situation one time where a little girl asked me, why are you going to eat that? Why don't you just get your food at Publix? I asked her parents first if I explained how the whole food chain works, and they agreed. So I asked her, I said, You do know that animals don't come from styrofoam in the back of the public's grocery store, right? And she was dumbfounded, had no idea that hamburger actually at one time was a cow, that pork chops were at one time a live pig. We've lost that connection to how food becomes food. And that's kind of like a side lesson to living history. It's not about preparing for the end of the world or anything like that. It's about just knowing, having knowledge. Uh, going out and asking questions, doing some research and finding out how to do something that is not normal or not generally proper. right? So eating animals of not a normal place, like cow, pig, or chicken, or turkey, or things of that nature. In the old times, if you're hungry, you ate it. Or if you're hungry, or if you just didn't have the money, come across a rabbit, you're going to find a way to make that rabbit be food. This is where being a civilized people and eating your food well-cooked comes in handy. You cook something, it's going to kill anything else that's in it. I'm certain that there are going to be some examples of things that, well, maybe you just shouldn't eat. And so when butchering the animal, look for things that might give you a clue that, well, maybe this shouldn't be such a great idea and also looking at the animal before you kill it nowadays we have people that have different mindsets eating animals and that's fine to each their own to me it's important to show that you can eat things other than cow pig turkey chicken that seems to be the general normalcy in in meat eating nowadays there's all kinds of options available out there might as well try it if you don't try it you don't
0: know a farm is a place of death because you've got to slaughter animals for food. And the whole family gets it. They understand that uh, tomorrow that might be the end of the line for that pig there or for that chicken.
1: I remember one time I was probably eight to 10 years old, and my grandmother, when she came back from the lake with five softshell turtles, and I got my lesson on dispatching and butchering turtles from my grandmother when I was somewhere between eight and 10 years old. In the process of learning that lesson, she sent my parents into town get five pounds of lard parents come back they're, they're all cleaned, ready to go fried them up and let me tell you that was some fantastic food but but we don't live that way anymore i think it's important to know where we come from that food indeed is not manufactured with styrofoam and cellophane wrapping it was an animal you need to understand that so you can give proper respect to that animal that you're eating it gave us life so that you can have life and i think that's important you weave this in as louis bears heart. The Seminole people are agricultural people. However, they were also cattle farmers, right? Some of the oldest cowboys in the United States were Seminole. And still to this day, meat is something that is needed in addition to vegetables
0: to sustain life. Your family is part of the living history genre. Tell us about how they all participate. My daughter used to teach using flint and
1: steel to teach people how to make a fire. She moved on in life and has joined the United States Navy. My wife will typically be doing some sort of a craft or working on cooking food or taking care of my two-year-old. The two-year-old has added another new dynamic. Now, no one's as interested in in Mui Bear's hut. They're now all interested in in Christian, my two-year-old. My history teaching is now revolving around my son because that's where everybody's looking. My mother-in-law and father-in-law are also involved in living history. And so she's given me a couple of things to work on that interpretation as far as diapers go. Usually utilizing uh, cattails and fabric for diaper type of material, showing also young ones would not typically always be fully dressed. It'd typically be almost like a, a long shirt or a chemise or something like that, just over top of the body. My eldest son is now seventeen, so last year when he turned sixteen he started in the reenacting portion of living history. He's now allowed by the state to be on the battlefield under my supervision or someone else's supervision. And so he's learning now not just showing Indian native children play just like everybody else. So He's now taking part in the camp, he's now taking part in battle reenactments, learning about the guns, learning more about the guns, how they actually work rather than being told and shown how they work, now he's experiencing how they work. He's learning even more so now through experience rather than just being told the dangers of utilizing black powder rifles and and muskets and flintlocks adding another area of potential danger. So now he's being able to put together all the stories and the lessons that he's been told into actual function. So it really is a family affair. It's a way of being family too. It gives the family time to be together, meet different people, not just other living historians, but also people in general, the guests that come and visit these functions, these events. It's a way of getting my children out of a bubble and learning that there's life outside of our house. Learning how to interact with people that they don't know. How to speak appropriately and professionally and with courtesy with people who might maybe even have a disagreement with what they're doing. How they're doing something or have questions of, well, what are you doing? Why are you using foot and steel? I thought Indians rub sticks together and then my children get the chance to try and explain how trade happens the practice of bargaining i give you this and you give me that it's equal value in each item for the person that's giving or receiving i think that it is important that children do this that they get out with their parents and learn how to interact with other people
0: what name does your son go by
1: my eldest son goes by red squirrel and uh Oftentimes, names are given for characteristics. In his childhood, he would fill his cheeks up with food and just sit there and maul over the same bite over and over and over again. So that's where his name came from. My youngest son has not received a native name yet. I'm still working on that one.
0: And your family is happy to be part of this.
1: Yes, it's something that we all look forward to. We're not only a historical camping family, we're also a modern tent camping family as well. It's just another excuse for us to get out of the house and camp, hang around a fire and cook some food and enjoy friends and good conversation. And it's something that we all look forward to. Living history is something that we do not just in at defense, but also in daily life. Teaching history and teaching where we've been so that we can go forward.
0: How long have you been interested in history? Pretty much since
1: childhood. In childhood, one of my favorite topics was the Civil War. I've been to a few Civil War reenactments. I decided the Civil War just wasn't for me. I remember in high school, I had a history teacher, uh, Mr. Fernandez. He really had a different teaching style. He found a way of bringing history to life, not by dressing up or what have you. He found a way of bringing history to life by giving real examples outside of the textbook of, of what was going on in, in certain situations. and and tell the stories of those times. I didn't realize it until quite a long time later that Mr. Fernandez was actually doing living history. He brought history to life outside of the text, away from the black and white print, brought questions and curiosities to the, the, the history story that was being given to make you think of, well, what really might have happened? What could have happened? What should have happened? I really appreciate Mr. Fernandez for that. He taught me living history before I knew what living history really was.
0: So then why the Seminoles? What brought me into Seminole War
1: reenacting, I wanna say in nineteen ninety five, scout troop that I was involved with, I was the second adult and the scout master was a state park ranger at Honeymoon Island and he would heard about the state park in Bushnell called Dave Battlefield. And he wanted to take the trip to the annual reenactment there. And so the troop went, everybody had a really great time seeing the camps and talking with people and watched the battle reenactment take place. The following year I wanted to go back but none of the boys or the adults wanted to go. So by this time I was now eighteen years old and had my own vehicle, so I kinda of loaded up, told Dad, Hey, I'll see you later tonight going to this reenactment up in Bushnell. So I went and come across an old scoutmaster of mine, Chris Gardner. He said, Louie, what are you doing later tonight? I said, well, I'm going to go back. I'll start with Dad and go out to Ebor City. He says, why don't you stay here? Tonight you can hang out on the fire with us and hear stories. Tomorrow I'll dress you up and we'll go shoot some guns. It sounds like a party to me. So I said, well, i got to go up to the corner and call Dad and let him know I'll not be home for supper. and he said, hey, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm going to hang out with Mr. Gardner and take part in this reenactment tomorrow. And it was a great evening, so I went back and had a great time. That night, reenactor, living historian is not with us anymore, Choby, staged the party at Wahoo Swamp, which the story says is what happened after the day battle. In the Wahoo Swamp, the Seminoles gathered together on the fire and were all kind of worried and scared of what they had just done. They had just started a, a war and were concerned about what the future might hold. Knowing Osceola wasn't there yet, he finally arrived to this and saw what was going on, and gave a motivating speech. And party of Wahoo Swamp began, swamp dancing and getting together and figuring this out. The next morning, Chris Garter dressed me up and did as he said, and taught me about black powder guns and took me to the safety meeting. And the rest is history. That's why Seminoles. Well, I wanted to get involved in this somehow, way, and I just found out how. I wasn't necessarily interested in doing Civil War, and Seminole history works for the state that I live in, Florida, the best place I've been to yet, and that's
0: why Seminole. But you're not playing a federal soldier. If you had different friends, might you have been playing a federal soldier? <laughs> I don't see myself a military type.
1: I like to make my own path. I kind of jugged with my daughter's JRRTC instructor, I said, man, I'm glad I'm Indian. I just want to walk in circles where somebody else tells me to go. He just kind of chuckled at it. I like to explore on my own and find different ways of doing things rather than being told which way to walk. The seminal reenacting fits my personality
0: better. From what you describe, it doesn't sound as though you became a Seminole living historian because you were eager to get into the battle reenactment action, but rather you're more comfortable with the more holistic approach presenting this is what Seminoles lived like when they weren't involved in active resistance to the Army's removal campaigns. Yes, yeah, that
1: kind of defines me, actually. I grew up in Boy Scouting. I've always found it important to know the whole story. It's not just about going and burning powder. It's about the story behind it. It's more important to understand where we're coming from. It's more than just one year, 30 minute bang, bang, shoot them up. It's a story. There's a reason. Understanding nobody wants to go to war. Nobody wants to kill somebody. Nobody wants to get dead. There are circumstances that push for that to happen. And it is a very unfortunate circumstance when talking about native history and native culture i relate to a game stickball some people call it lacrosse hockey highlight soccer these are all native games that were used to settle arguments or disagreements between people instead of going to war and killing a bunch of people they played a game and whoever won the game won the argument that's how the cherokee got north georgia there's a town in georgia called ball ground georgia And that's the last game that was played between the Creeks and the Cherokees, and it was over land rights. It's important to not just show the war as well. It's important to show technology. It's important to show culture and family, because these people that were at war were not just warriors. They were husbands, and they were sons, and they were daughters and, and wives and mothers and fathers, and there's a whole lot more to the story than just the war, just the battle, just
0: shooting a gun. There's a whole lot more to the story
1: about the Civil War era than just that.
0: Clearly, this is more than talk for you, Louis, because you actually embody it. This holistic approach as a living historian at places such as Fort Foster or Fort King.
1: Right. So, Fort Foster has always been a very special place to me. I don't exactly know why. But in the past, I've done a lot of garrisons where a group of soldiers and Seminole reenactors would come together and on a Saturday afternoon and talk to tourists from Hillsborough River State Park and tell them about the history. And during these garrisons, we were not shooting back and forth at each other. This was just purely living history, telling the story of the soldiers, what their daily life was, telling the story of the Seminole, what their daily life was. For a historical base there would definitely not have been a, a seminal village right there across the bridge, right across the river from the fort, obviously. But there were a few towns in the general area. And so for a living history basis, it is good to show what a hunting camp is. See, what we set up there at Fort Foster is not a village. We have a canvas tent and canvas tents were more of a hunting camp when you live in a village setting as we would being our cultural society oftentimes the game the meat is not going to be near the village so you'd have to go off into the forest and live for a couple of weeks gathering enough food to bring back to the village so that everyone can eat and so when you're living in the forest like that you would appreciate some creature comforts, such as bedding and dry place to be underneath, perhaps even a chair or cooking pot, stuff like that. And you don't necessarily want to carry all of that in and out of the woods. So, native people of Florida would oftentimes set up a hunting camp, just like many people do nowadays, and leave it there. When they come back to go hunting, they set up camp and start hunting and, and gathering food. It's important to show that portion of the history as well. We can't necessarily show what a village would be there with without the permanent structures, you know, chakis and uh, cooked chikis, sleeping chikis and sleeping chiquis and such, but we can at least show the temporary living quarters the hunting camp it would be filled with blankets and chairs and camp boxes with pots and pans and doodads and tools for fixing your gun or axes and and things for chopping wood and everything such as that so it's important to show that portion of the history
0: as well. What do you find most compelling about the Seminole and the Seminole story?
1: Resiliency, um, knowing how to utilize the land to the best of their ability or Utilize the land to make it work for them. Not changing land, but using the land. Using nature, using tools that God has given us in nature to accomplish a task. Utilizing plants for for housing. Hunting camps, like I was talking before, were not necessarily always just canvas. Sometimes hunting camp was a smaller version of its key. A lean-to or some other shape or structure of a dwelling utilizing the cabbage palm leaves for the roof and cypress trees for poles and to create a framework to support that roof. Utilizing all of nature that's given to accomplish a task. That's always been an interest of mine as well, growing up camping and dad teaching me different things out in the woods. And then now through living history, finding the native way of doing the same and working with nature to, to make yourself happier.
0: Louis, I used to like camping as a youth, and then I joined the U.S. Army, and camping wasn't ever fun again. (laughs) I hope I never find that realization. I can definitely appreciate, it's not for
1: everybody. I saw a meme somewhere, camping the most expensive way to do without. So that's something that I and my family enjoy, is having basic creature comforts, but also taking the time away from modern technology, doing the same thing with love, not necessarily having the blender to make a smoothie or what have you. Instead, just crunch on the apple. You know, it's just the same thing, just a different way of doing it. I enjoy that, doing the same, but with less. How do you prepare as a living historian? My first mentor, Chris Gardner, gave me a lot of advice and a lot of insight in how to to do this, how to do living history. My first task was given to me to open my eyes and open my ears and close my mouth. Watch and listen. Watch what other people are doing. Listen how other people interpret and then at the end of the day I was told to open my mouth and ask questions about what I saw and what I heard. And I did so and at that point Chris gave me some answers and other answers he said that I had to research for myself. In research said the rule of three. If you find three examples of one thing, there's a good chance it might have happened. So, a little bit into that is how to do research. Find three examples of something, then it might have happened. It might have happened because the person giving the information that you're researching is going to throw their own skew on it. They're going to throw their own perspective on it. Having three examples is going to possibly give you a better rounded answer. And that kind of gives me a reminder of something that my father taught me, was whenever there's a question there's always three stories. The first person story, the second person story, and then the, the truth somewhere in the middle. So uh, the rule of three works in a lot of examples. In preparing to be a living historian, read books. However, in my persona as a native reenactor, actor, a lot of those things are not written. So oftentimes it helps to talk with other people, find a story and learn from that story. Learn the story and then learn from the story. We have a couple of similar tribal members that are living stories with us. They're often very willing to share information. You'll read something in a book and you'll say, well, okay, great, but what's the other side? So talk to somebody that's read a different book. Find that book and read that book. Talk to someone that's heard the oral history, what had happened. Use that story for research as well. When giving information to the public, Nothing is for certain. In my opinion, there's no such thing as an expert. No one knows everything. There's always something more to learn. There's always something more to discover. There's always another way of doing something. I've been doing living history since January of 1996, and I'm always still learning. There's always something else. There's always a different story. There's always a different option. I hold my life to that as well. There's
0: always a different way. Why is it important for you to be as authentic as possible when presenting as a living historian or as a reenactor?
1: It's important because how can you tell a story if you're not right? How can you be trusted if you're doing things halfway? If you're only half done, you're not completed. So it's important to know what to look like. If you are reenacting a wartime scenario, you're probably not going to be wearing all the bells and whistles of ceremonial or Sunday go to meeting regalia, because that's just not comfortable out in the woods, in the briars, in the, in the bushes, running around in the tall grasses. It's not comfortable to dress that way. It's not just being sure to, to look authentic or be authentic for what you're actually doing. Why would you wear all sorts of really long and stacked on silver earrings when you're running through the woods? It's not going to work. Tie your clothing appropriately for going through the forest so everything trails behind you. You're less likely to get hung up. Your leg ties are less likely to get hung up. Your sash is less likely to get hung up. Keep your shooting bag with a short strap so it hangs closer to your body. Then turn it so it follows along behind you. When you need it, turn it to its side so you can get into it. If you have long hair, it should be braided to the backside of you. These small details help you to tell the whole story. If you look right, you're going to sound right. Oftentimes, I'll hear newer living historians say, well, I found this. I know it's not quite right, but it'll work. No. You just answered your own question. It'll work. No, it won't work because you just said it's not right. This is where I'd come in and say, hey, let's think about this. If you need help, I'll help you. Here's some research information. This is what I would recommend to do come up with the materials and I'll pitch in and show you how it works. It's that important to me to make sure that we, not just me, but everyone looks right. And helping those newer living historians coming into this, learn how to do research the way that I was taught to do the research. Not just blindly saying, no, go do your research. No, this is how you do your research. Here's some examples of research material. It's very important to me because if we all look right, then living history is going to continue, because eventually people are going to do their own
0: research and they're going to say, "Well, man, that guy's—he wasn't right. He didn't look right. That doesn't make sense. It's not totally important to me." So, what do you aim for when you're talking to the public at a living history event as Louis Bear's heart? I aim for people to have a better understanding. History books don't
1: always tell the whole story and they don't always tell the complete truth. History books are going to have their own perspective on things. So that the history book is written by the victor. The the victor was an enemy of the group that I'm portraying. I aim for people to have the whole story. I aim for people to have emotion, have understanding of the time and the conflict, the, the why's, not just the what's or the who's but the why's. I aim for people to ask questions. Silly or no, ask the question because if you have a question then it's obviously a question in your mind. I aim for people to understand what's going on, what happened. I aim for people to get an understanding of what did happen so that we can correct it for the future. It's not just about having fun, it's also about educating, which is fun to me, but it's also about learning and finding a different way to solve a conflict.
0: And educating without
1: preaching. <laughs> exactly. Yes. My style of educating is can be seen as different. I, I give thought-provoking ideas. What do you think would happen if? Do you think this deer leg could possibly be used as a tool? What tool do you think it might be able to be used as? What if you were to hit this deer leg with a rock and then rub that broken leg on the rock? What does it become now? It becomes a knife. These leading questions, these thought-provoking ideas, as simple as what if you broke this deer leg with a rock, gives someone the possession of finding a different answer, of finding a different way of doing something. The whole story is not told by me. The whole story is told by everyone, including me, because perspective. I've done my research, and I'm merely just a man who's Telling his story. So I'm adding my own perspective. So now there's four stories now.
0: How do you acquire and maintain your attire so that you continue to appear authentic?
1: Acquiring, especially for Seminole regalia, can sometimes be slightly difficult. Years and years ago, I acquired a how-to book called 19th Century Seminole Men's Clothing, Rick Obermeyer, editor. That's a book on clothing of how to make a Seminole plain shirt, how to make a Seminole long shirt, how to do finger weaving, how to make moccasins, how to make leather leggings, how to make wool leggings, how to tie a turban bandolier bags, includes everything for an initial portion of research. That came in very handy that I purchased many, many years ago. In fact, you still got my parents' address listed on it, and this one is, is dated 1991. Now you can find that information and additional information online dot nativetech.com. As far as clothing goes, finding the right material, I really want to stress this urgently. It's very important that you wear natural fiber clothing. The reason being is in living history, in reenacting events, you're going to be around campfires. You're going to be around burning embers of black powder. Natural fibers will burn, synthetic fibers will melt. When the book says use 100% cotton, use 100% cotton, please. (laughs) all right i'm throwing a uh, joking connotation in here but it's very important to follow that synthetic fibers are going to look brighter and more vibrant and some people might consider them to be more comfortable but safety not just authenticity is utmost important in my book many times i've gotten my clothing caught on fire both from the campfire cooking fire and also from my flintlock it's saved me a lot of suffering by using natural fiber clothing. Obtaining it can be difficult. There are a couple people that are manufacturing seminal clothing, but very, very, very few. I only know a handful, and probably even less than a handful. My mother-in-law being one, uh, another friend of the Berry family, they're producing some clothing as well. So obtaining clothing, uh, especially since I got married to my mother-in-law's daughter, uh, has become so much easier. Thanks, Mom. she does anything cloth for me, including finger weaving, shirts, waistcoats, vests. When it comes to cloth, I have a hard time. Sewing leather, I'll do that all day long. But when it comes to the gussets in the arms and stuff like that, it throws me for a loop and I cannot wrap my head around it. However, the the book that I was talking about it is very handy for that and goes through it very detailed. Uh, it just, just didn't work out for me. Maintaining. If you do living history right, you're gonna have to replace clothing eventually. So rolling around in the dirt, rolling around, doing reenactments, walking through the woods, clothes are going to get torn up. You're going to be constantly sewing, you're going to be constantly repairing, you're going to be constantly repairing or replacing deerskin moccasins because these living history events oftentimes have paved roadways that you're eventually going to have to cross. Those paved roadways are murder on deerskin. Locks and repair including uh, glue and patches of deerskin on the soles. Nowadays, I actually wear colonial or Brogan shoes Due to diabetes and needing to protect my feet a little bit better than a piece of deer skin.
0: So that adds a different flair
1: to my persona and my look.
0: I would just interject for our listeners that Louie is not losing any authenticity. The soldier reenactors wear brogans as well because brogans were shoes of the time. And if a Seminole needed shoes besides moccasins, they could get them off a soldier that they had slayed in battle. Clothing... To me, people come up to me at events and say, man,
1: you must be hot. And I'm like, no, man, this is all cotton. This is brain-tan deer skin. Believe it or not, brain-tan deer skin breathes, And that's actually one way to verify that it is indeed brain-tan. Put your hand behind the skin, your mouth to the other side, and blow through it. If you can feel your breath, it's brain-tan. To me, the summer clothing is very comfortable and works with you instead of against you.
0: Have you found that they're not just stylish, they're actually quite practical, and that's the reason why they have them?
1: Absolutely, yes. Uh, practicality is very important, and oftentimes that's definitely the way that I prefer to be anyway. cute little story came out of the room. My wife and I were going on a date night, and apparently my daughter didn't know it, and she says, man, what are you all dressed up for? I'm just wearing a button-up shirt and a nice pair of blue jeans. <laughs> uh, typically, I'm wearing um, work shorts and a Carhartt shirt, because she says, you I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you always look like you're about to go do some work. And my wife says, well, it's because he's typically about to go do some work. So I guess for me to be dressed up is abnormal. It's not practical clothing. It's not as comfortable. Practicality is very important. When you're in the woods, different ways of doing things. First aid comes in handy with a silk scarf, right? Break an arm or hurt your shoulder or what have you. Your clothing has now become first aid piece of equipment. Turbans are not just design. A cheesecloth would be used for mosquito netting. cloth large enough wrapped around the head would be stretched between two trees and used as a hammock. Loose-fitting clothing allows for air breathability and also assists in keeping mosquitoes off your skin. Leather and or finger-woven sashes around the waist keep the extra material of the shirt close to your body as you're walking through the woods. The brain tan leggings protect your legs from the briars, bushes, sawgrass, and palmettos that you're walking through. Same with the moccasins. It's not... Just style. It's utilitarian uses of everything. That's my lifestyle.
0: We've talked about a lot of things, louie but we haven't talked about how you got your name.
1: Yes. So after Chris passed away, uh, Chris Gardner, my first mentor, Jim Sawgrass, took me over, and I traveled a lot with him and learned a lot from him. Still am learning a lot from him. I traveled all over the country. I've been in New Mexico with him, talking at the Fletsy. Facility there, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center there in uh, Artesia, New Mexico. I've been to uh, Battle in New Orleans for the Bicentennial. I was at Jazz Fest in New Orleans, uh, done shows at Kewa Island in North Carolina. I spent a lot of time with Jim Sawgrass and he is the one that gave me the name Nokus Figi, which is Heart of the Bear. I go by Bear's Heart because another friend of ours had that name first, he and I came up with the agreement many years ago that he would remain Heart of the Bear and I would become Bear's Heart. So it is a slight skew on the translation, but um, it works for everybody. When I got married, my wife noted that oftentimes when I'm having difficulty doing things I growl or grunt and or possibly maybe snore. I don't know. Snoring never bothered me. I'm always asleep. but. So, the bear portion of it, she says, fits me very well. So, uh, that's where I have been given the name, Bear's Heart.
0: Where in Florida will the public find you?
1: In Florida, hopefully, very soon. You can find me Fort Foster. You can find me Fort Cooper. Manti Springs does living history event, usually the Friday and Saturday after Thanksgiving. Find me at Blacker County Pauwap Princess Place Preserve. That's over on the East Coast, Palm Coast area. South off at the reservation. I'm hoping uh, maybe that'll take off again and go back down there. Events here in Florida, like I said, will hopefully start up again and hopefully soon. Realizing the current times with the COVID-19, you
0: might have to figure some way of social distance reenacting. It'll be interesting. <laughs> I want to suggest a qualified exception to your rule about authenticity in say portraying a Seminole to tell the story and that would be when i see park rangers in uniform and they're talking i feel like this is the authority you work with florida state parks as a park ranger
1: yes i'm currently a ranger at hillsborough River state park and hillsborough state park is one of the original eight state parks in Florida. It was part of the new deal for the federal government finding some way of giving people jobs. And these people built this park back in the 30s. And so I'm learning that portion of cultural interpretation. It's definitely a fun challenge. I just started there in October, but I've been volunteering for the park at Fort Foster since 1996. Now I have a different way of Doing interpretation, and it's not always just about Seminole. It's not always just about the Seminole Wars or the Fort Foster. Now I have the opportunity to interpret the nature that's found in the park, the animals and plants and ecosystems, and the river. Hillsborough River State Park was built around Class Two river rapids found right here in Florida. Our portion of the Hillsborough River has Class Two river rapids that, by the way, are not permitted to be shot with a canoe or kayak. Uh, we extremely discourage that. You can enjoy canoeing, kayaking at the park, downriver from the rapids, view all sorts of wildlife, alligators and moccasins and just kind of Florida. We have a sign by the front gate, when you come in, this is the real Florida. Come experience real Florida. We have it. It is a beautiful resource for people to come out, get out of the house, come find us, enjoy nature, find out what Florida is.
0: As a seminal living historian, your credibility comes from your authenticity as well as your knowledge. As a Hillsboro State Park Ranger, your credibility comes from your authority while wearing the park ranger uniform as well as your knowledge. What ties these two together is your knowledge and you get your knowledge from research. For the guests enjoy our park, I am often approached
1: and asked many, many questions. I am now back in research mode more than ever, researching my new abilities. And honing my new abilities. Something that Chris Gardner taught me if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know the answer. And then don't leave it at that. Go and find the answer. Help that person find the answer. Do the research and find out. That way, this time, you can answer that question better. Anything in particular,
0: now that you're a park ranger, that you like more than anything else?
1: Finding someone that knows something that's different, finding someone that is curious i really enjoy it when someone asks questions because to me that means that they're looking for an answer rather than just taking something at face value they're trying to learn something that is absolutely gorgeous in my mind when you meet someone like that i really do appreciate people coming up and asking questions
0: louis Bearsheart, we're out of time thank you for joining us for the seminal wars thank you very much patrick this has been fun and i very much enjoyed it If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast'em, provided by kind permission of Rudy Youngman. Back bumper music, second Seminole win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.